Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. Should Christians celebrate the birth of Christ? If so, where should we draw the line with respect to ancient pagan customs like bringing an evergreen tree into our houses or giving presents to each other? How much pagan practice is too much? My guest today is philosopher Dale Tuggy, the host of the Trinities podcast and the chair of the board of the Unitarian Christian Alliance. However, in this episode, we're not talking about analytic theology or Christology. Instead, we're discussing Christmas and how Christians should think about it. Tuggy thoughtfully argues that Christians have the freedom to celebrate or not celebrate Christmas. It's kind of like a Christmas special episode today, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. Here now is episode 527, Should Christians Celebrate Christmas? with Dr. Dale Tuggy. Welcome, Dale Tuggy, to Restitutio. Thanks for talking with me today. Thanks, Sean. Always a pleasure to be on Restitutio. This time of year, most Christians celebrate Christmas. However, there is a minority of folks who say Christmas is pagan and that Christians should not be celebrating it. I thought today would be good to have a Christmas special episode on whether or not Christians should be allowed to celebrate Christmas. Uh, Where would you like to get started on this topic? I mean, do you think Christmas is pagan? No, I don't. But I think a good place to start might be my own repentance. I used to be kind of judgmental about this. You know, why do these people have to be such Grinches and spoil sports? But then you get a uh, historical perspective on it and you learn that before sometime in the middle of the 1800s, most Protestants didn't celebrate Christmas. It just seemed kind of too Catholic to them or whatever. You know, it's called Christ Mass. My own perspective now is, you know, I'm trying to imitate Paul in Romans 14. He says, some judge one day to be better than another, while others judge all days to be alike. Let all be fully convinced in their own minds. Those who observe the day, observe it for the Lord. And also those who eat, eat for the Lord, since they give thanks to God, while those who abstain, abstain for the Lord and give thanks to God. So if you celebrate Christmas, I think that's great. You should honor God in how you do it. If you feel like that's not in the Bible and it's got associations with things that you disagree with and you don't want to do it, I think that's fine. You should honor God on that day in your way. And I don't think either side should judge each other. So I've repented of my past uh, judgment against the Christmas dislikers. So you've always been a pro-Christmas person? Yeah, I was in, you know, kind of a typical American Christian family, and we always had the tree and the presents and everything, and my parents made a big deal out of it when we were little. Okay, so what would you say to somebody that alleges that uh, Christmas is just repurposed pagan practices— and that Christians have no business doing it. How would you uh, explain yourself in that kind of scenario? Well, cultural appropriation is the birthright of the human race. We all are stealing stuff from each other constantly. Every group of people that's ever lived has found out about something cool or interesting or innovative or beautiful that the tribe next door was doing, and so they steal it and put their own spin on it. You know, think about stealing uh, recipes from various ethnic groups or styles of music. You don't just steal it, you transform it and you turn it into something different, right? And then later those guys steal it back from you. And I just think this is part of what humans do. It's part of the way that we enjoy the differences between each other. So, you know, if we're stealing things from pagans, I don't see why, as long as it's not things that are wrong, you know, things that are intrinsically sinful or harmful, then I'm, I'm like, this, this is just normal stealing that's part of human life. But if someone wants to say, hey, look, I just think this is pagan. I mean, look, it's, it's not. It's just Catholic, right? Take the Christmas tree. You know, if you go back in time a thousand years ago, you can find pagans who invest this tree with a certain meaning and they're using it in a certain way. But if you just ask your Christmas celebrating Christian friend, what they mean by it. It's just, I don't know, it's just this funny thing we do at Christmas. It's where we stick our presents under. It doesn't really mean, you know, what does it symbolize? Which which pagan god is it honoring? 
none. Like they, that's just not in their minds, right? The meaning of a ritual is what it is because of what's in the minds of the celebrants and what's in kind of the collective social understanding, right? Mm-hmm. So suppose you you see um, this religious group from afar. You can't quite hear what they're doing, but you get your binoculars out and you you're looking at them while they're having a service, this religious group that you're unfamiliar with. And it looks like they're doing exactly what your church does when they cel- when you guys celebrate communion. So, you know, whether you pass around a cup and break off a piece of bread or you have the little itty bitty Baptist cups and the little um, <laughs> pieces of unleavened bread or whatever, however you do it, these people are doing it exactly the same, right? You can just watch them go through all the steps. Okay. And then after the service is over, you go up and talk to them and say, Hey, what are you guys? What kind of, what kind of Christians are you? And they, they act shocked and horrified and they're like, no, we're pagans. We're worshiping mother earth here and all the traditional deities of the Druids. You're like, what on earth? Now, Look, you don't think that they've inadvertently honored God and Jesus, do you? Because they have stolen these forms that are used by Christians. It's not Christian. You, you wouldn't say they got Christianized. They got played, and they're like accidentally yeah, like, giving honor to Christ. Suckers, you accidentally worshipped our God. No, it's it, it means what they think it means. You know what what they're doing with it depends on their beliefs and so on. Okay, so if that doesn't make them accidentally holy, then uh, if we steal something from the pagans and give it our own meaning, like eating, uh, you know, baking a certain cake or having a log on the fire or having this tree decoration in our house or exchanging presents, um, it's not pagan just because they came up with it. It is what we make of it. So if we're going around saying all of this is honoring the birth of Christ, and we're not doing things that dishonor Christ and God, being super greedy or getting drunk or doing other rotten things. Getting in fights at the toy store. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, getting, getting in a fist fight at the Christmas dinner table. It looks like Paul is saying God and Christ are going to be honored by things that you do, whether you abstain or whether you partake in these things, which in and of themselves, these things are innocent, mm-hmm. right? Like how would the medieval pagans be so powerful that they could just eternally corrupt pine trees or, you know, wrapping gifts up in pretty paper and exchanging them or having a feast. Like they, they just don't have that much power. They're just people like us. And in a sense, all things are good and all things belong to God. And so we can honor God with these things. Yeah. I think there's something about the darkness of this time of year as well. And I've noticed that there's just so many holidays. Like up up near me, I'm in New York, so it's maybe a little darker than other parts of the United States that are south and other countries that are closer to the equator. But uh, by me, it gets dark at 4 o'clock, 4.30 and at the latest. And really from October onwards, we have all of these holidays. You know, we've got uh, Halloween, we've got Thanksgiving, uh, we've got Christmas, uh, we've got New Year's, and it's just like bang, 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 bang. Really, from the time when it starts getting dark, we start having these holidays. And these kind of holidays often have light associated with them. You know, I don't get into decorating my uh, my house, certainly not for Halloween, and that's really a whole other subject, to be honest. But a lot of people do. Yeah. And, you know, it kind of makes sense that you know, for Christmas, for Halloween, uh, people are bringing light on their houses. For Christmas, this idea of uh, decorating your lawn with these, what, uh, illuminated inflatables, and then bringing, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but they're, they're big now in the suburbs, let me tell you. And then you bring a tree in and uh, you wrap it with lights and you have it lit. You know, th- th- I think there's something in the human psyche that, that sort of like finds comfort in lighting things in the dark time of the year. So I don't think it's yeah. all that accidental. Yeah, the kind of things you're describing are the kind of things that our, you know, Irish and Norse ancestors, you know, Northern Europe, it's dark for this part of the year and dank and kind of miserable. 
and yeah, it's probably not an accident that, you know, you see traditions like this in Germany and England and places. Sure. Yeah. And the, the tree also smells good. If you, if you get a real tree, mm-hmm. uh, I suppose yep. if you have an artificial tree, what do you, what do you spray it or something with a chemical? Uh, but, uh, <laughs> sorry. Yeah. You're hearing my snobbery no, coming out the there. Smell. Uh, my wife likes to decorate the house with pine branches and winter berry anyhow you know even after christmas and all that is is over you know there's just something nice about having the the pine odor in the house and you know there's something pretty about it so you know i don't think it's necessarily something that has great significance other than this is just like a nice way to to bring the outside in in this time of year yeah, yeah, and yet it's still a matter of conscience, you know. For some of our Unitarian Christian brethren, they just really strongly associate these traditions with, quote, Christendom, mm. or with Roman Catholicism, yeah, or with just Trinitarianism. They correctly point out that there's all this stuff also broken out this time of year about how God's a baby and Mary's changing God's diapers and all of this, you know, he's running the universe as a baby. And yeah, this is this is nonsensical, ridiculous stuff. And you you know, some of the Christmas carols have, you know, kind of Nicene stuff in them about the deity of Christ and so on. Our approach at in my family in our churches, we just edit out those verses, you know. So much for verse three, and then we sing the rest of the song. <laughs> yeah. I've got a quote for you. Hark the Herald Angels sing. There's a verse in it that says Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ is the everlasting Lord. Late in time, behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Or then there's the Mary Did You Know song. Did you know that your baby boy has walked where (laughs) angels trod? When you kiss your little baby, you kiss the face of God. Uh, so, you know, you do have this uh, erroneous theology that I can see why some people would say, well, this just taints Christmas. Uh, I don't want to yeah. uh, have anything to do with it. Yeah, there's there's some really egregious kind of mystery mongering. You know, they're like, look, he's omnipotent, but he's a baby. Isn't that a contradiction? But some people enjoy mystery mongering. It's it's a hobby. <laughs> right. So, yeah, if you if this just feels dirty to you, you know, you shouldn't do it then. Um, if you don't feel like you could steal this stuff in good conscience, then yeah, don't, don't do it, but don't pass judgment on people who, you know, feel like they're honoring God and Christ by doing this. And they just stick to the biblical stuff. They read Matthew and Luke and, uh, they edit out that verse and sing the rest, which is perfectly biblical. And, uh, you know, let, let each one do what, what they think will be best for them and their family and, in, in the way that they want to please God. There's other nonsense too, right? Like there's a ridiculous amount of overspending that Americans engage in this time of year. Yeah. Uh, just buying stupid stuff irresponsibly, racking the credit cards up. And then there's all this silly kind of, you know, Santa and Rudolph and Frosty the Snowman and kind of dopey Christmas songs. Like I saw mommy kissing Santa Claus, which are questionable in taste. Uh, so <laughs> if you want to be a Grinch, there's plenty of material here. There's, yeah. You have to admit well, that. Well, even the Grinch itself, there you go. There's another yeah. bizarro tradition. Yeah, it's evolved to become a central holiday for our particular culture. Atheists celebrate Christmas. It's a, it's just a big time off to go hang with the family and feast and, and do some fun things. That makes it harder to pass up on. It's a little bit countercultural to not celebrate Christmas, but that's why there's all the nonsense because it's like our biggest, this and Thanksgiving, I think for Americans are, are kind of the biggest holidays where mm-hmm. it's just an, op- an opportunity for all these social goods. Yeah. What about uh, people that, and you see this this time of year, they quote Jeremiah 10 verse three says, for the customs of the peoples are vanity. A tree from the forest is cut down and worked with an axe by the hands of a craftsman. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nails so that it cannot move. Isn't the Christmas tree an idol? Well, you know, whether something is an idol depends on how it's used. So the way idolatry works is, and this is true in Hinduism and Buddhism 
and Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy, the idolater believes that when the idol is properly set up and commissioned, whether it's a tree or a statue or an icon, they believe that when it's properly installed, somehow what's represented by it is there or you have access to it. So it's supposed to be like this technology by which you can access sometimes God or saints or various polytheistic deities. If you do it right, then when the idol is properly set up, it's like this access point that gives you... Now now they'll listen to you, right? Now they'll hear your prayers. Now maybe they'll help you out and so on. So that's what they're doing. And you can just talk to your Hindu neighbor. You know, what are you doing when you you offer uh, fire and a little snack to this statue of this guy with the elephant head, you know, and they'll, they'll tell you sometimes they believe that they experienced, you know, the idol looking back at them and so on. I've had people tell me that. So all of these idol worshiping components, I think are totally absent the way that the average person now uses Christmas trees you don't see them with their hands together gazing at the Christmas tree, hoping to experience some deity through mm. it. It's just yeah. a silly decoration. You know, they don't, they don't bow nope. to it. They don't yeah. give it offerings. They don't put it to bed at night. Like sometimes idolaters do. Yeah. I think the average American is so underexposed to modern day idolatry that they, yeah. th- these are not obvious to them. Yeah. Yeah. The two biggest countries in the world are just filled with idolatry from top to bottom. China and India, literal idolatry, not like loving your car too much or being a bit on the greedy side. Like, no, like butt up in the air, face down the floor in front of this object. So, yeah, if you don't have those elements, I don't think it's idol worship. I don't fully understand what was going on with what Jeremiah was talking about, but I have to assume it's some kind of god of the forest or fertility or harvest or something, right, that... They, their, their pagan neighbors were idolatry. You're always, you're always trying to get something right because this is the God of fill in the blank. And if you do the stuff right and you honor the God of fill in the blank, the way that they want to be honored, they'll help you, whatever, win a war, get pregnant, have a better harvest, make more money. So I assume it was one of those kind of things. And it's kind of like other magical practices or astrology, the horoscope and things like that. It's hard for us to understand, but when your neighbors are doing these things and they're telling you that it works, then there's this temptation to just try it. Like maybe, maybe it doesn't work or maybe it does. But my neighbor Fred said that this magical practice works. So maybe I'll just cover my bases and do that too. Okay. Well then you've just, stopped trusting in God to that extent. Mm. You're trying to pull these secret levers and push these magical buttons. And so it really conflicts with trust in the almighty. And that's why God is against this. But that that's why the Israelites were constantly tempted by it because they had people around them at all times who were doing these practices and saying that it works. So it's it's a temptation. It's not as much a temptation for us Except, like I said, for those superstitions that are current in our day, like the horoscope. Yeah. So there's no question that there is such a thing as winter solstice, that ancient pagan people wanted to recognize it in some way. We had the festival to Sol Invictus. Uh, We had Saturnalia Mm -hmm. in the Roman Mm -hmm. Empire. And it seems to be just a matter of the historical record that the early church of, what, the 4th century or so, reappropriated these holidays as a a Christian time of year. You're not denying any of that. No, I, there was a certain point, late ancient and early medieval times, where the Catholic Church adopted this as a strategy, partly because of what we were mentioning before, that pagan cultures, they usually have a big series of holidays and feasts and festivals, and they're socially very important. They were so important, people didn't really want to give them up, so they just tried to hijack them and Christianize them. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, whatever you think of that, uh, whether you would have strongly disagreed at the time or whatever, 
My point would be that the pagans are just long gone. Like nobody even knows what these things mean anymore. So then how is it that they would have the power, these pagans from 1500 years ago or 2000 years ago, how would they have the power to permanently ruin these things for us? I could understand why if you were in a pagan context, say you live in India among Hindus, where that's a vast majority of the population. You could argue that, you know, they do that, uh, what are they, I forget what they call it, but they draw those fancy designs on the ground in colored powder for some of their holidays. It's really kind of cool. They make these super fancy designs on the ground in, in colored powder. And I, oh. I'm sure it has some magical or religious meaning, right? You, you could imagine some Christians just stealing that and drawing a manger scene or something or giving a totally different interpretation because they, they still want to have that type of holiday, but they don't want to have the Hindu interpretation. Okay, you could argue for that or against that. You know, you wouldn't want to do it if it made your neighbors thought that you were still a Hindu once you were a Christian, right? Okay, but then yeah. subtract all the all the idol-worshipping neighbors out of it, and then it's kind of like, who cares, you know, what this used to mean to these other people? What matters to us is what it means to us when we do it. Yeah. Yeah, and there are so many other quote-unquote pagan things, like our days of the week, our months of the year, uh, the Olympics is originally pagan, uh, bonfires are pagan, covering your mouth when you yawn to prevent evil spirits from entering your body, right? I mean, pants were worn by the Germanic pagans, so, you know, we can't wear pants anymore. Should we go to the toga? Oh, no, those are, that's for the Roman pagans. So what, do we just need to all wear spandex? You know, like, come on, this this just doesn't work to say I'm going to avoid all things the pagans did or practices the pagans had, I think the better way to do it is to appropriate them in a way that conforms with your beliefs, uh, which seems to be what you're arguing yeah, for here. Yeah, because, I mean, pagans kind of do everything. You know, they they have their hands all over the place, but we we can't believe that all of these things are just corrupted for us just because these people do it. They're just people, you know. I mean, here here's another thing that you could argue might be pagan in origin, you know, the early Christians, when they started having this Sunday gathering, this love feast, this was a feast in honor of God and Christ. And there were pagans that had a ritual uh, dinner together in honor of their deities. Paul I, somewhere says, you know, you don't want to go participate in this feast in honor of, you know, Hermes or whatever. Because he, he suggests that, that there's actually uh, demons involved in that. But, I mean, the form that they took, I think having a feast in honor of an, uh, the unseen guest, you know, that, in a sense, that was a form that the pagans were using. But so what? Again, the, the meaning of a ritual is the meaning that's given to it by the participants, the individuals in the social context. So yeah. I can't go into the feast in honor of Hermes and just sort of think to myself that this is okay. I'm going to honor Christ by doing this and just not tell anybody that would be kind of ridiculous. Right. But when it's yeah. generally understood that this is the meaning of it, well, th that's why I wouldn't go to that feast, but that's why I'll go to the, to the one in, in honor of Christ. It seems like Paul addresses this in first Corinthians to some degree in first Corinthians eight, the question of eating food that had been ritually butchered. Mm -hmm. And essentially he argues that it's fine, no big deal, go ahead and eat the food. Uh, but then in chapter 10, he says, don't participate of the table of of the Lord and the table of demons. Yep. And uh, seems to be expressing the same idea you just articulated that to actually go to the temple festival in the city, which, you know, these would be their big holidays and, and big times of feasting. And, and my old professor, Paula Fredrickson, famously called it the ritual redistribution of red meat, uh, which <laughs> for people that subsist on grain and uh, occasional vegetables, red meat's a big deal. But mm. um, the Christians are not going to attend the actual worship service. But the meat sold the next day in the marketplace or eaten at someone's house a couple days later, the meat is not permanently tainted 
but it is something that to participate in it in the sacred space or the unsacred space of uh, you know the idol and so forth would be participating in the table of demons. So I don't know if that if that's too nuanced of a view, but it seems to be what he's doing between First Corinthians eight verses ten. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And Paul gives a couple of guidelines about all this to go back to Romans 14. And I love Romans 14 because it's about food and it's about holidays, but he totally doesn't tell you which. He makes it a perfectly general teaching that can be applied to, well, things that he never envisioned, like small C Catholic style of Christmas celebrations that didn't exist in his day. So his guidelines are that you have to go by your conscience, number one, but also you have to consider the good of your neighbor. So if I was in a small church and there were some people there who were super you know, troubled by Christmas, I wouldn't do Christmas stuff, at least in church I wouldn't, because I wouldn't want them to feel like they had been compromised and that they were sinning. And I'd rather miss out on some of the fun than uh, the, the Christmassy stuff than I would to, you know, cause them to stumble. You know, at the start of Romans 14, he, he says, welcome those who are weak in faith, but not for the purpose of quarreling over opinions. Right. So y- you don't want this to become a divisive thing. Unity is more important than, than being able to do your Christmassy stuff. But it is the people who are weaker in faith who are going to be troubled probably by such things they're holding on to some scruples that that they've been taught somewhere but that are are not really necessary scruples there's various foreign kinds of food you buy japanese sake or things like this sometimes they've done some ritual to honor the traditional deity of the kitchen or something at the factory where they made that but again all all things are good all foods can be enjoyed with thanksgiving in moderation and you can honor God by eating these things. And who cares what they what they thought about their kitchen deity <laughs> when they did this? But again, yeah. it's it, it, it's it's conscience and love that are that are the guides. I think uh, conscience for what you do, but also concern and consideration for brothers and sisters who just are going to feel uh, dirty if they do these things. Uh, one of the church fathers, I, I can't remember who, if it was Origen or Gregory Thaumaturgus or Clement of Alexandria. I've narrowed it down to those three. But uh, at, at some point, I, I remember reading the, uh, one of them talking about the gold that Moses used for the building of the ark, the beautiful materials he used to construct the tabernacle. And uh, the question was, where did this stuff come from? Where do these fine, you know, purple fabrics and the the gold and the silver and all, you know, they talk about the rings and so forth in the second half of Exodus. Where did it all come from? The answer is it came from pagan Egypt. Mm-hmm. And the Israelites asked to to borrow, uh, quote unquote, borrow permanently uh, their, their neighbor's mm-hmm. uh, gold. and As instructed uh, by the prophet. Yeah. Uh, yeah, as instructed by God through Moses, and uh, it was sort of sanctified through the Red Sea crossing, at least uh, so argued the early church fathers. And then as a result, it was now able to be used for literally the holiest object ever made on the entire planet. You know, like God didn't for- have the Israelites dig up their own gold and smelt it and and make sure that it's pure gold, untainted by idolatry. No, like we know for sure. The Egyptians, if they were anything, they were idolaters. And yet God authorized this repurposing of these physical objects so that they could become sanctified and holy and, and, and to be used like that. Yeah, that's right. I mean, let's not forget that God plucked Abram out of a pagan context. And, you know, here's something else of pagan origin. Dale Tuggy and Sean Finnegan with their white ancestors who were, you know, worshiping God knows what back in ancient times. Mm-hmm. Um, Druids for me. Yeah. Doing, <laughs> probably doing human sacrifices and yep. having idols galore. I mean, this isn't something I'm proud of, but you know what? It's just another ethnic group. And when when God makes it holy, it's holy. So we're accepted in Christ. 
And so, yeah, God could take a piece of gold smelted by the uh, Egyptians or whoever and have it used in his temple. Mm -hmm. You don't want to underestimate God's powers of sanctification. Those who uh, partake of, of the questionable or controversial practices are exhorted to not make their brother or sister who's weaker in faith stumble. You'd rather forego the celebration than, you know, really bother your your churchmate. But he also has an instruction for the one who abstains, which is not to pass judgment on the people who partake. Mm-hmm. He's like, hey, they're, yeah. they're not your servants. They're servants of Christ, and he'll judge them. And so don't worry about them. If Trust that maybe they're honoring God in their own way. You do what you think you need to do. And let's not let's not fight and uh, divide and and harshly judge one another about this. Yeah, I was thinking of the practice we have of giving gifts at birthdays. Mm-hmm. This is obviously not biblical in origin. There, as my Jehovah's Witness friends would be quick to point out, there's only one um, one or two mentions of birthdays, and it's by uh, evil Herod. Uh, who's celebrating his birthday, where John the Baptist gets executed. And maybe there's one more in the Old Testament by an evil king, but it's not endorsed by Scripture. But most Christians do uh, celebrate birthdays to some degree, at least acknowledging a birthday. There's no place in the Bible that tells us we should do that. So I think it's similarly a matter of conscience. If I'm going to give gifts and, and celebrate the birthdays for my wife and for my siblings and for my parents and for my four children... It just would make sense to mark the birth of Jesus. And, you know, I don't think he was born on December 25th. To be honest, I have no idea when he was born. Mm-hmm. I would say this, you don't have to celebrate your birthday on the actual day, especially if we're talking about someone born 2,000 years ago and we don't know when the day is. Mm-hmm. To me, it's it's just sort of like an opportunity to express joy and gratitude for the birth of the one who brought us salvation. When Jesus is born, God has the angels speak to the shepherds. There is a birth announcement. The angels are rejoicing. They're sort of overjoyed. The the shepherds are overwhelmed, and then they find the baby as they were directed, and they rejoice as well. So there's there's a lot of recognition and rejoicing on the original birth of Christ. And so I, I think it's it seems fitting to me to mark the birth of Christ in some way, not necessarily on December 25th, but I think evangelistically it's helpful for us as Christians to sort of take advantage of the holiday season and of this, like, you know, even the word Christmas it has the word Christ in it. You know, it's kind of like a hook in the culture for us to naturally talk about Jesus with our neighbors and, and coworkers in a way that we couldn't normally. So, yeah, no, you're right. Yeah. They're They're sitting there looking at manger scenes and maybe watching a, a Jesus movie that has the accounts of Matthew or Luke in them. It is an opportunity. And I, I like the birthday analogy. You know, our Jehovah's Witness friends are against both Christmases and birthday celebrations. But look, uh, there, there could be bad and good ways to celebrate my birthday. I mean, on my birthday, I'm just grateful to God that I've got another year because I know that these are not guaranteed. And, uh, you know, we're not doing horrible, sinful things when we uh, eat a little cake and blow out some candles. I mean, I could imagine somebody just like, you know, let's party hard for we may die soon, you know, and just be really terrible on their birthday. Like that that would not be a good birthday celebrating tradition. But, yeah, these things seem harmless in themselves and, and can be done in a way that honors God. So, but yeah, if you think it's pagan, yeah, don't don't celebrate your birthday. But if you're going to celebrate birthdays, yeah, why not the birthday of the most important human being that's ever lived? Yeah. The guy who changed the world, you know. And when it comes to Christianizing pagan dates or pagan festivals, it's not like when the Christians did this, it's not like what they did is they took everything. Because wasn't there like wife swapping and like you could just do whatever you wanted, like a day of mischief where you could just, or am I getting confused on, on two different things here? Oh, I don't know. I don't know enough about pagan holidays and, and nonsense. Yeah, I think there was too. a lot of misbehavior. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think there was like a day where you could just like do whatever you wanted and there was no legal consequence. Like you could 
sleep with whoever you wanted. You could beat up whoever you wanted. It was just like mayhem for a day, and it was like a pressure release valve yeah. uh, for the society. Yeah. The Christianization of that holiday did not carry that over, right? That would be ungodly. Yeah, although Mardi Gras gets kind of wild. And uh, <laughs> sometimes sometimes it's still pretty wild uh, with some of these Catholic holidays, but it, yeah. it, it just depends, right? And there are Catholics who use them in different ways, sometimes in the fear of God and sometimes just in the desire to party hardy. Sean, another way that this holiday could be useful to us as Unitarian Christians is in having conversations with our mainstream or Trinitarian Christian friends. I put out a podcast episode several years ago called have yourself an incarnation free Christmas. And <laughs> it really just, rolls off the tongue. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's the latest Carol, man. I'll, and I, you know, the main part of it, I went through the birth accounts in Matthew and Luke and just pointed out that there's zero elements of incarnation there because there's not a before stage, a transition stage and an after stage like people think they see in John and Philippians too. I don't think it's really there, but yeah. I mean, as far as Matthew and Luke are concerned, like this is a miraculously conceived baby person, be, human being being born. And that's what's going on. They don't have anybody flying down from heaven and entering Mary's womb, gaining a complete human nature and things like that. So, I mean, it's kind of fun just to, to point this out that nobody in scripture talks about this omniscient, omnipotent baby or engages in the, the traditional loony paradox mongering that occasionally the Baptist pastor or somebody online gets into. So th that's another good conversation topic. What did they think they were celebrating? They were celebrating the birth of one destined to be the King and the Messiah, the son of Mary, not God incarnate or a God man. Yeah, it seemed like a baby. Yeah. <laughs> Just a baby. Yeah. Doing all the baby things. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Uh, what about John 1? Because that, that gets a lot of play this time of year. You've done a lot of work on John 1. Would you hold still to the personification view? that the word is being personified just like wisdom was personified in Proverbs 8 and then really not until verse 14 do we have a human being. Yeah, I think Jesus really comes into it in verse 14. Yeah. And it's it's saying that he's the greatest embodiment of God's word or wisdom by which he created all things. So, I don't know, I guess around Christmas I would just point out that the passage doesn't say that Jesus is the same person as this word. Mm -hmm. And if the word is a personification, nobody is the same person as the word. Right. The word's not really a person. It's just being mm -hmm. talked about as if it were a person. Just like there isn't anybody who is Lady Wisdom in Proverbs 8. that She's just a personification of God's wisdom and even of the kind of wisdom that, that we can have if God blesses us with it. So that's a big conversation, of course. But yeah, it doesn't say that's the same person as Jesus. And interestingly, they never call him the word later in the book. Even though they call him everything else, they refrain from calling him the word, the author does. And mm -hmm. so I think that's a giveaway that he wants you to realize that that's personification at the very beginning of the book. The leap commonly made is that, okay, the Word was with God, the Word was God, or or however you translate that last phrase there. And then they're like, oh, and the Word became flesh. And they're like, see, God became flesh. But that's not at all what it says. Uh, what it says is the Word became flesh. If the Word is some activity of God or attribute of God that's being personified, that becomes a human being. This is, this is a metaphor. This is not talking about a spirit being squeezing itself into the body of a human in some mysterious yeah. way. Yeah. It can't be a literal transition. And, uh, you know, in my recent discussion with some philosophers, including William Lane Craig, he was kind of like, ha ha, you know, a personification can't turn into a human being. Well, of course it can. That's why it's not a literal transition, uh, you know, in the life of this one being. If God's wisdom comes down from heaven and tabernacles among us as the Torah, like that's that's not two stages in the life history of some guy. 
or some mm-hmm. being. It's just to say that God's eternal wisdom is expressed in the law of Moses, basically. Yeah. Or if God's word from heaven leaps down like a warrior, I think in one of the intertestamental books, that's a passage about when the uh, firstborn of the Egyptians were slain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's not it's not a guy. So it, this is not literal speech. Yeah, very good. Well, uh, if people want to hear more about your take on John 1, I will put your uh, presentation about that in the show notes for this episode so that people can check that out. I think we should also mention, Sean, the recent presentation at the UCA by Dr. Dustin Smith. And he's basically giving examples of what he calls incarnation. I would call it non-literal incarnation. But let's not quarrel about words. He's he's giving background in his presentation to how to understand precisely this this text and the word became flesh and dwelled among us and uh, it's great he gives lots of relevant examples and i think he shows you how they the original audience uh, would have taken it that way so yeah this this should be released very soon i think on the uca youtube channel okay very good so i'll put uh links to both those in the show notes for this episode just while i've got you here how how are you doing? How's the Trinity's podcast? How's uh, the book project? You're writing a Four Views book. Uh, give us a little update. Well, the Trinity's podcast has slowed down a lot. I'm more in kind of a once a month schedule. And, you know, it's kind of in direct conflict with writing. Writing is hard. Yeah. Anybody that tells you writing is not hard, either they're miraculously gifted or they're lying. Uh, <laughs> Writing is just incredibly hard, and I've always been very slow at it. And so I'm working on a book of my unpublished essays, uh, which I thought I was just going to quickly fix up and publish. But, you know, now 10 years later, I have more to say on the topic. So I'm hoping to get this out in 2024. The Four Views debate book about the Trinity with William Hasker, Bo Branson, and William Lane Craig is all completely written with the conclusions and everything, and it's just being edited right now. And I don't know how many months that's going to take, but I hope not too many because there's a lot of interest in the book and kind of seeing how that argument goes down. So yeah, I've got lots of lots of uh, heavy writing ahead of me in 2024 mm-hmm. and hopefully some good podcasts too. I never run out of podcast ideas. It's just the time to make it happen, you know? Yeah. Yeah, and you, you've kind of moved away from the interview approach more to the monologue style. Yeah, I still do both. If I interview people, I, I like it to be of work that I think is pretty good, even if I don't you know, agree with the conclusions. Like if I interview somebody like Dr. Timothy Paul, I, I just think he's an excellent philosopher. And I always enjoy talking to him, and I think his work is very valuable relating to incarnation speculations. But, you know, not everybody's work is like that. So (laughs) I'm at least as picky as I've ever been about kind of what I want to highlight. But I still do want to draw into conversation the more mainstream kinds of views. I want to get our perspective to be heard. I want it to be on people's mental map. Mm -hmm. We're not cultists. We're people in a longstanding minority report. Well, it's, it's been a minority report since about the the 200s but it was at first a majority report <laughs> mm-hmm. so it should be taken seriously not just blown off and you know dismissed as a mere man christology and things like that yeah well very good and you also have a debate coming up yes in march yeah debating james white in houston texas and the lutheran church if you look hard enough, you can probably get some tickets to that if you're in the Houston area. I'm looking forward to that. I've been working on my opening statement and kind of getting some coaching on my strategy. So I'm hoping to make that worthwhile and something that'll be instructive to people. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it will certainly be entertaining. (laughs) 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 I don't know how worthwhile it'll be. Hopefully it'll be worthwhile as well. Yeah. It uh, takes two to tango. James you know. White is a very uh, bold and uh, famous debater. He he will not be holding back, that's for sure. Yeah, he's kind of a verbal bully, and he, he kind of has his own 
idiosyncratic take on Trinitarian tradition. So I'm going to have something to say about his favorite passages and his confused statement that Jesus is Yahweh. Yeah. Very good. Well, uh, thanks for joining me today. I wish you a Merry Christmas and uh, to your family as well. Any, uh, any final thoughts just as we say goodbye here? Just a Merry Christmas to those who celebrate and happy December 25th to those who don't. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you. Thanks, John. Well, that brings this interview to a close. What did you think? Come on over to restitutio.org and find episode 527, Should Christians Celebrate Christmas, and leave your feedback there. Now, this is the time of year when many Christians consider year-end giving, and I want to ask you a question. Has Restitutio been a meaningful part of your 2023 year? If you just popped in for this one episode, please don't feel any pressure to give, but if you're a regular listener and you can help, please consider giving either a monthly amount or a one-time donation. Even if you can only do a small amount, it adds up. Also, Restitutio is a 501c3 organization, so we'll send you a report of your giving in January for tax purposes. And thanks to all of you who have given. It's such a great help to the cause. Now, if you'd like to give, you can do that through restitutio.org. It's like the word restitution with no n.org. On a different note, I've had a couple of requests to port over the audio podcast onto the Restitutio YouTube channel. Recently, YouTube came up with a way to make that process incredibly easy, so I've done the necessary work to get that completed. And day by day, the channel is loading a bunch of episodes. I guess when your show has over 500 episodes, YouTube needs to do it in batches. Currently, there are over 300 episodes on there now, but they're still marked private, I think, until the process concludes. So stay tuned for that. And these YouTube videos are just a still picture with the audio from the podcast feed playing, but they may be helpful for sharing on social media. I'll let you know. Hopefully next week that process will be complete and fully public. Also, I wanted to read out a couple of comments on last week's episode with Jeff Dibel on dealing with our assumptions. Peter wrote in saying, Hi, Sean and Jeff. I found this podcast very helpful. Great topic. Some great insights and tips given. Asking good open questions at the right time with someone is key. Then stop there. These are skills we all need to continue to develop. Evangelism is largely about both planting and watering seeds, according to the leading of the Holy Spirit. The rest is up to the individual as the Holy Spirit works on their heart, their free will remaining intact. Dropping all presuppositions and genuinely re-examining established assumptions is not easy. These are part of how we make sense of and feel safe in our world. Taking off my own Trinitarian glasses and choosing to really and truly be honest about having a sola scriptura basis for my beliefs is what got me over the line as well. Suddenly, Scripture all fits together without contradictions. Changing from a Trinitarian to a completely convinced monotheist for me took a period of about two years. I came out of my closet. Prefacing a contentious topic with a warning... You might not agree with what I'm about to share, but please hear me out. Consider what I'm saying. I'm not asking you to agree with me. I love what Sean shared in the last two minutes of his podcast. Absolutely 100% agree and take the same position myself. I am constantly exposing myself to positions I believe I probably don't agree with as I always want to be open to correction and growth. I've handed several copies of Jeff's excellent, easy to read Christ Before Creeds and will continue to do so. Well, thanks so much, Peter. It's so encouraging to hear your story a little bit and to know that this really is a key to unlocking truth. What is it? Intellectual humility. Being able to say, I could be wrong about that. Let me read it from a different perspective. Let me expose myself to people with whom I disagree and see what the reasons are. I'm always searching for those reasons. I'm always trying to bypass and make myself immune to rhetoric and the emotional appeals in people's arguments and instead drill down to what are the reasons driving this? And if your only reasons are, hey, this is a really popular view, and if you don't believe this, we're not going to treat you well. To me, those are not, <laughs> those are not indicators of truth. Uh, there are incredibly more popular ideas out there. How about this one? Christianity's wrong. What? 
60 plus percent of the world agrees. The majority of the world agrees that Christianity is wrong. So therefore, Christianity is wrong. No, of course not. We can't, we can't simply go with the majority. We can't simply say, oh, well, that idea is very popular and uh, I won't have any struggles in my social network if I adopt. No, the, that is not the way of truth. That is not the way of discernment. If we're going to be good Bereans, what we want to do is check different ideas against the scriptures to see if they're really true. We have the scriptures in our own language and many excellent translations that are very helpful to discern God's thoughts as recorded in scripture. Someone named Sean, hey, that's a good name, wrote in saying, this is a good discussion. Presuppositions being challenged are ultimately what allowed me to look at the Bible differently and eventually ended up a biblical Unitarian. However, there are many other presuppositions that I held strongly from fundamentalist style beliefs of my youth that needed challenged and they continued while or after coming to Unitarianism. And then Sean lists out five different presuppositions that he has challenged over the years. Some interesting stuff there for you to consider. Come on over to restitudio.org and find episode 526, Assumptions and Conversations, and read and, and scroll down and you can read his comment in full there. Well, that brings this episode to an end. Uh, hopefully next week I can run the numbers on the top 10 episodes of 2023 and let you know who the winner is. So hopefully I can get that information out to you next week. It's always an exciting time of year to wrap up and take a moment to consider what has happened on the show in the past year. So stay tuned for that. Thanks everyone for tuning in. Again, if you'd like to support us, you can do that at our website, restitudio.org. Catch you next week. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.